Welcome to the Boiled Now Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. And I'm Sam. Howdy, Sam. Hey there, Don. It feels like forever since I've seen you. It's been like, what, two and a half hours? (laughs) Two and a half hours. Hour and a half. Hour and a half. And that's only because I had to run home, leave the coffee. I didn't get to go to the coffee shop. I know. You were missed. We talked uh, about you. I, well, I needed to set up the microphones and such, you know. Yeah, and you know, I mean, if you train the owl, that would make things a little easier. I wish that owl. Would, I wish that owl would help out around here. <laughs> that owl doesn't do a dang thing. It just eats and poops and has feathers everywhere <laughs> and remarks about every move I make, every step you take, <laughs> every step I take. Your Good. owl is watching you. <laughs> that owl. <laughs> I was always wondering who the hell I am. Guess what? What? I had an anniversary. You since did? Since our last recording. 25 years. I'm a quarter of a century old. Uh, but yeah. I'm a half a century high. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but the thing is, you're still not an old timer. Why right. not? Because got, I've got waddles and fo- when I shave, <laughs> no, I have to shave no. around the waddles you're, and folds. And you're my an skin. old fart, but not an old timer. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. <laughs> no, I mean, but you've you've you're commented a smart a- ass. Is what <laughs> well, you, you know that. You know that. Um, but you've commented several times. I think it was uh, down in Jupiter, Florida, that you're definitely not an old timer there. No, I mean, no, you I'm had not. guys there with like forty some years That's and stuff, right? right? Yeah, sitting beside them. Yeah. Oh, shoot, I sat beside a guy who. Picked up a start over chip who had 23 years. That'll shake you. And I had 23 years. And I was like feeling uh, invulnerable. And um, I was talking to him before the meeting. Uh And we were talking about being sober and and living one day at a time. What's going on and this stuff. And then he he stood up and picked up a chip and said that he had 23 years and went out and drank for a month and came back in. That is some tough stuff. Oh God! I'm glad you were there to see that, though. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a wake up. It's real. Yeah. I mean, it, anytime it's possible with the right confluence of events for things to become so bad in life. And if I were to quit going to AA, if I were to quit doing my morning prayer and meditation, if I were to quit having contact with other people in recovery, then it could make sense. Like, what I think what it is, it's always the same thing. You know, the two words, fuck it. The fuck it's will fuck you up. That's, you know. Yeah. Every time I quit before I came to AA, I would, I was serious. I was not going to drink again. And then it would be. Fuck it. Dude, I still got the fuckets, but my fuckets are go, like, go get junk food now. Maybe we need to start a fuck it bucket. Ooh. <laughs> I like the idea of a fuck it bucket. Maybe we could get that like to catch on in meetings and stuff. Yeah, it's the instead of a, a resentment, pick up a resentment chip, you throw a coin in the fuck it bucket. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> <laughs> like, 
the resounding <laughs> smack of. <laughs> So it's got definitely got to be a galvanized pail. Yeah, it's, we got this has got to be loud. This has got to be a sound effect, you know. Yes, totally. It's got to be dramatic. If, if nowhere else, we need it on the show. <laughs> oh, I know what it could be. It could be like a drop the rock. <laughs> so, Something really so hit like an anvil and drop it. On. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Throw the anvil in the fucking bucket. <laughs> Can we combine that with the resentment chip so you can drop the anvil on your resentment? Oh, that's a good idea. Or the person that you're resenting? We're gonna, okay, we're going to have to hammer this out between oh, the God. show here. We've got a guest that we need to uh, get to, but well, these are good ideas. It's, it's true, but I do want to say one thing before we, we introduce our guest, and that is, Don, there are so many people in this world who are so glad that you are sober, and they don't even know you. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Well, we have a guest. Introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Michael, and uh, I live in Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> hey, Michael, we're glad, Michael, you're, here. glad yeah. you're here. Absolutely. Are you an alcoholic? I am. I attest to that. He is definitely an alcoholic. <laughs> I've, you, seen, I've seen him in meetings. We're Sponsy Brothers right yeah, now, oh, too. Okay. So, yeah. You didn't drink with him. No. Nah, nah. He nah. couldn't have hung with me, I'm sure. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> we, were, we had some of the same stomping grounds that you were in Graham, and I grew up in Burlington, yeah. so we... You know, some of the same shenanigans going on in the same area. Well, what were the shenanigans that were happening to you that, that made you want to come to AA? Well, you know, I, I, the my story is maybe more typical these days where AA was pushed on me at a young age, whether it was, you know, even before I had any, like, drinking citations or le- legality stuff where that was being pushed on me. My parents, they knew that, uh, you know, something was awry at an early age. For them, they wanted me to go to treatment or outpatient or something, you know, to give me help because their typical grounding and taking the phone away and privileges, it just it never really worked. Mm-hmm. So I, I was introduced to AA long before I ever was interested in it. How was that? How did you learn about AA? I didn't know about AA. I had a friend who got sober two years before I quit drinking, but that was the first I ever heard of it. And then that guy influenced me. He quit drinking, and he was a good friend of mine and a drinking buddy. So that kind of shone a light on me inside. I mean, I never said it to anybody, yeah. but it, it affected me. So how'd you hear about AA? I, th- I think initially, early on, with AA and treatment, all I, it was grouped all together in my mind, and I had friends that were pushed into it mm-hmm. who had gotten in more trouble than I did at an early age in middle school and high school. And for me, uh, once I got introduced to it, I was like, okay, this is my get out of jail free card. You know, if I do this and I can, you know, I can get these tickets or these these citations oh. or whatever, I can go to the court and say, hey, I've done this. And then I remember the first meeting I ever went to, uh, I was I was required to an outpatient I was signed up in, and I remember going there, intoxicated, and uh, attaboy, yeah, yeah, and uh, and I I don't it was here it was in Summerfield I don't remember the exact meeting but I remember. I don't remember anything that was said, but I just remember sitting there thinking, uh, like, man, like, I'll never do this. You know, like, I was so close-minded that I just remember being like, I'm not an alcoholic, and I can't wait to get out of here. This is not me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why I felt like, but, you know, and I had a, I had a few other introductions before I got sober this last round, and, uh, you know, for me, maybe... You know, I didn't get it that time. I wasn't like a, a white chip wonder like you hear, but mm-hmm. it was that seed started to get planted. And the more AA meetings I went to and the more treatment 
you know, 12 step recovery based treatment I went to that seed started to get planted. And it was like, you know, like I, I realized I was an alcoholic while I was actively out there doing it. And that's, you know, to me, it was like a really, it was a really low place to be, to realize like, man, like, you know, the denial started to go away. I couldn't believe those lies that I, I, I told myself for so long. Like, this is all fun. I can stop this whenever I want. I have control of it. You know, the people I'm around, they're my friends who, you know, they really weren't. We were all just using each other. And um, to come to that realization, it really, it kind of fueled me once I was ready. You know, luckily I made it out alive. And once I was ready, it really fueled me. It was like, you know, it was like, this is a life and death situation. And I'm going to put everything I have into this. When when was it? When was that last time that you came into AA? The last time I, I came into January 5th of 2013, I was admitted into the psychiatric ward in Alamance County. And I spent a few days there and then they transferred me directly to inpatient center. And then that's kind of where I started my journey ever again in, in Statesboro, Georgia. So you're one of those people who the big book talks about that started making appearances in mental institutions yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> appearing tonight oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, Michael. It, it's a great place to detox it really just thrusts you into reality you know what i mean it's not only was everything falling apart around me but i was you know well, now wait a minute describe what was going on with you psychically that last time that said this is it the moment of surrender. That's what I want to hear. Describe. I think it was more like a buildup over. So I'd gotten in a bunch of legal trouble in Wilmington, North Carolina. It, it was, it was to the point where I knew the group I was with, someone had ratted me out or, you know, there was undercover stuff going on with the police. So I couldn't trust anyone. Right. And I went to those li- dirty rats. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> they're just looking out for themselves. Just the things that I would have done if I was in that situation. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. We were all just out to get each other. And, uh, and so I, I went to live at um, a, a place at the beach, and it's crazy. Like, I was living in this oceanfront condo, you know, like a paradise for what most people would consider, right? And I spent uh, a good part of a year just, you know, locked up in there alone. The only time I would go out every couple of days was to go get what I needed to keep going. <sighs> and... Um, at some point, I know that feeling. That's yeah, exactly. That's it's lonely. like, mm-hmm. yeah, it seriously is. But you know what? Like those, the legal troubles and and not being able to trust anyone and that isolation and you know getting to that point where it was like, okay, like accepting that I'm an alcoholic while I'm still doing all those things, but also, you know, realizing I don't have control over it and getting to that point where you know it's like, man, like this is who I am. This is what I am, and I don't really care if like I live anymore. And just, and just kind of like keeping that mentality every day is like, you know, like, what do I need to do to like be okay? And then what can I do a little bit more of to just be at the point of like, am I going to make it back from this next time I go on a bender, you know, and just living at that point of like not caring whether I lived or died. And then that led up to the point where maybe in the last couple of weeks, uh, it was like, it's not like I was like suicidal, like I'm going to kill myself right now, but my actions really did you know that that's what they said i mean is yeah. when i look back at it it was like you know take a little bit of this substance and put a little bit more just to see if i can take it one more time yeah. and you know what i mean and then you know at that point the gig was up you know my family had been through a decade of this with me and at that point they were like you know we don't know uh you know you're so volatile are you going to be 
passing out? Are you going to be hostile? Are you going to, you know, they didn't trust me to be around them. So I remember that last year it was like around, you know, like the holidays and things like that. And they're like, you know, we love you, but you know, we don't want anything to do with you. We can't trust you to be in our own home. And until you're ready to get some help, like, you know, we can't support this type of behavior. And, and so the family was out of the picture and, you know, and I pushed them away. I kept pushing them away. It's like, you know, when you're in that mentality, it's like, you know, I these, don't want them in the picture. Exactly. Cause the more people care about you and love you, the more they're going to get in between me and that next drink. Cause they want to help me. Right. They cared about me. They wanted me to be healthy and happy. And I remember in the last, I, there's a couple things that happened, but I remember that my dad, you know, he had all these aspirations for me. He was like, you know, you'll be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, these things that, that they told me my whole life. And I remember my dad sent me down uh, shortly before I went to treatment and him saying, like, you know, I just like I just don't want you to die. Like, I don't care if you're a garbage man or, you know, not to put down any profession, but, you know, I don't care if you're, you know, busting tables. Like, I just don't want you to, to see you just demolish your life like this and just be so miserable. And, you know, and, and even the friends, like, you know, the quote unquote friends that I had, the, you know, drinking and using buddies, they didn't even want anything to do with me. You know, yeah. everyone is like really like crazy how no matter how much uh, drugs or alcohol I had or, you know, what I had going on, people just couldn't even be around me. Like I was not mentally stable. I remember, I guess you could have like you'll hear some people in meetings say like, you know, when did you like you know, accept your first step, like, accept, like, I was an alcoholic, right, and I remember the plan was, I started talking to my family, I knew the gig was up, and they're like, all right, like, we'll, we'll help you find a treatment center, and they found this place in Georgia, I'd never heard of the city or anything, and I was like, all right, I'll go, and even at that point, like, I was willing, but it was still, like, I, and I, I can't even explain it today, but I've been introduced to 12-step recovery, and it was like, there's a part of me that, like, had this resentment towards 12-step recovery, for no like logical reason. I was like, I'll go anywhere except a 12 step recovery place, you know, base facility. And obviously they had, uh, counselors that they were seeing that well, were wait like, a minute. What's, what do you, why? I have no idea. I mean, this is like my, Just like, because it might help. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> well, maybe. Or, or maybe it was the thing that you knew. Yeah. It was, it was else. what yeah. I knew. And I was like, I guess like in my, like, you know, distorted, like, chemically burned out brain i was just like i don't want that i want to go somewhere where there's like a spa or something i don't know like i don't know what i wanted Passages by malibu exactly yeah exactly (laughs) exactly exactly and uh my plan was i was on uh supervised probation at that point and my plan was you know i'll just go down to georgia and i'll deal with this when i get back you know what i mean Uh like so i was i was basically like telling my parents i was like oh i'm gonna have like a a felony warrant out for my arrest and no big deal. We'll figure it out when I get back. And obviously they were, they were like, uh, no, like that's not a good way to approach this. Like, let's not do that. So, and this is like, you know, I have a hard time believing in like miracles or things happening by chance, but this, this is part of my story. That I, I don't think about it very often, but the way all the players and everything lined up is there's no really logic or science that can explain it. So my parents convinced me to go tell my probation officer uh, that I was going to go down there so we could kind of get clearance, you know, whatever. And she thought that I was doing everything. Like, I had been totally, like, you know, bluffing her this whole time and telling her I've gotten my life together and really everything's just falling apart. And so I call her up and she doesn't answer and I leave her a voicemail and I'm like, hey, 
you know, I've been, uh, it's the holidays, Christmas time, and I've been drinking a little too much, and uh, I need to go to treatment. So I'll be in Georgia for the next, you know, 12 weeks, and uh, I'll see you later. Like, that was, like, really the consensus oh, of, wow. of the message. So she calls me back, like, maybe an hour later, and she's like, I don't think you understand, like, how this works. But if you don't come to my office right now, like we're going to send a patrol car out and we're going to come pick you up. So I was, I was definitely terrified that, you know, I kept telling my parents, I was like, if I tell them what I've been doing and, and you know, what I'm engaged in and what's happening this whole time since, you know, I've been on probation over half a year now, you know, I was like, they're going to lock me up, you know, like they're going to like, there's, and that was my fear, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I again, it wasn't much logic behind it. I was just trying to avoid getting in more trouble. So, I and it, it sounds logical, <laughs> yes. absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. so, the crazy, I guess, what I was referencing to the crazy part was that my dad, he worked the, the, the guy who supervised the probation office in that county. My dad had worked with him like 23 years ago at that time, now or you know, mm-hmm. pushing 30 years. So, my dad calls him. And he's like, look, you know, my son's going to come in. He needs help. You know, he's going to die if he doesn't get help. And I need y'all to not lock him up. Like, I don't know what needs to happen. And my dad, like, was basically honest and told him the mm-hmm. thing. So I get there. And the way probation set up, if you've never been in there, you walk in and there's a room and there's no bathrooms or anything. And there's, like, a waiting room where you wait to be called back and taken back and whether they're going to drug test you or, or what have you. And so I get there. And the supervisor, he instantly comes out and pulls me back to his office. And he's talking to me and he's like, you know, what's going on? Like, your dad told me that, like, he's really scared for you. And I, and I told him everything. I spilled my guts. I was like, this is the stuff I've been doing. I'm in withdrawals right now. The, some of the stuff I've been doing, like, it's medically unsafe for me to stop. I could, like, have seizures or what have you. And at that point my probation officer walks in the room, you know, I'm still like, it's still fuzzy, but I remember them asking me, they're like, if we let you leave here right now and someone offers you a drink or offers you whatever, are you going to be able to tell them that? And that was the first time in my life, you know, I knew that answer already, but that was the Mm -hmm. first time I'd ever said out loud to anyone, you know, no, like no matter how much I want to stop, no matter the consequences, you know, no matter how many times I delete these people's phone numbers, you know, I cannot say no. Even if I don't have money in my pocket or whatever, that obsession had completely taken over my life. And I was, I was unable, you know, my self-will was not even in the equation anymore. Was that the first time you had honestly answered that question? Oh, out loud, for sure. For sure. Like, especially to someone in authority or to someone, you know, I think out out loud is, is powerful is the way because i mean i could i knew in my mind what was going on with me but when i finally said it out loud i've got to go to an aa meeting it was it was real yeah it was it was the first time and so you know they kind of tricked me they're like all right well we got a nice hospital bed for you we're going to detox you you know it's going to be great and they take me. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be great. Yeah, yeah. So that was like how they coerced me. Wait a minute. I want to, that thing about saying it out loud. What one thing that gets me in media is that they always portray AA and they say they have them saying their name and everybody saying hey, 
you know, I'm Don, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Don! And they kind of make fun of it. Mm -hmm. Because they don't understand what we're really doing with that. And what we're really doing with that, every single time, is surrendering. When I went to the first meeting I went to and said, I'm Don, I'm an alcoholic. That was the first time I ever said the word alcoholic next to my name. Yeah, well, and, and it, doing that every time is every time's a surrender. It's it is, and it's also getting comfortable with that surrender and 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 acceptance of that. When I first came in, I wouldn't say I'm Sam and I'm an alcoholic. It was Shannon. Uh, I I said <laughs> I said um, I'm Shannon and I am alcoholic because <clears throat> the difference. The semantics, semantics there Distance. was 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 important. It's yes. like I am not an alcoholic. I am alcoholic. Um, and, you know, and it was just like, yeah, shut the fuck up, Sam. Pick up a damn <laughs> D- chip. died alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, it becomes it becomes uh, like saying it again and again. I take it inside, and every time I to the place now, if I'm. I have to watch myself like if I'm in any group like at a ch- at church and they go around and introduce themselves. And I go, I'm yes. Don, I'm a... Uh, oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, glad to be here. <laughs> okay, go ahead, there you go. Michael. So I... Um, so there's more There's more like crazy things of how it lined up. So they end up, like I already said, they, they put me in the psych ward. They wouldn't detox me because my vitals were so unstable they're like, you're just, we're going to have to monitor you. If we give you any medicine, your heart rate's too low and all this. So I really, I kicked it hard and with people screaming all night and, you know, you're in there with, with the people, not only who have drug and alcohol problems, but you know, everyone is a harm to themselves. So people who try to commit suicide or people with dementia, all these things. So, um, there was a, a lady in there who she was in there for dementia. She'd been there for a few times and it happened to be the wife of the supervisor that had worked with my dad all those mm-hmm. years ago. And so I was, you know, obviously, again, I'm not like in a sane state of mind. So, of course, I get very angry that I'm there. Mm-hmm. I'm not like in a point where like I'm going to get help. You know, thank you all. It was like, I hate you all. Kiss my ass. Mm-hmm. Look at what you've done to me. You know, was it anything like, you know, all they're just trying to like, how can we like keep you from just like going over the edge? Like they've seen me so many times. So I wouldn't allow my family to come visit me, but he was allowed to come into the facility because his wife was there. And I remember maybe it was 24 hours later or 48 hours. I can't remember, but I was sitting there eating with the, the rest of the patients and his wife was there and he came over and talked to me and he said, uh, and this really stuck with me. You know, he, he told me, he said, I know you're angry and I know you don't want to be here, but if you make it out of this and you're able to get to the other side, you're going to thank us one day. And, you know, I couldn't hear that then, but that really, you know, and, and what's cool is I got to go make amends to them and thank them for all the things they've done for mm-hmm. me. It's crazy. Like I went to my probation officer uh, with some time after I got out of treatment and just thanked them. Like, you know, they, they really did. How much did. time? I think at that point, I was still in Georgia. I probably did that around a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Whenever I came back home to visit. And um, and it's just so crazy, like, how all of these people, if they wouldn't have been in that place, who knows how this would have turned out. 
I mean, I can't, right. I don't know. I can't read the future, how everything, but it, to me, like, you know, if that's, I, you know, I don't know what to call it, but I, science and logic can't really explain why all that mm. fell in place the way it did. You know, I have a, uh, a phrase that I learned or, or stumbled across in, in early recovery that, that I absolutely love. And it, if it, it fits what you've said here, at least to my ears. And that is every time, uh, when I thought my life was falling apart, when I looked back on it, it was falling together. Yeah. And that's that type of thing of those, those things that are just not readily explainable yeah. as to how this all pieced together and look how it turned out. Yeah. That's why you got to walk blindly into recovery because you can't see what mm-hmm. the path's going to be. I had yeah. no idea how that was going to work. Well, Didn't it makes sense. It set it set the pace for me being motivated and having some motives. Okay, like I want to do this and really taking you know some ownership of my own recovery. So before, when did that did that happen in? Well, I remember a psych ward. No, or did that happen once you got into regular meetings afterwards? That happened in in uh, inpatient and and meetings afterwards. The big thing that happened uh, in the psych ward was when I was leaving. I remember I was going up the elevator and I was walking out with my family. They're going to drive me down there. It was some provider. I I don't know what their title was, but I remember them asking me, you know, are you okay? And I turned to them and I said, you know, I'm I'm scared. You know, I don't know uh, what's going to happen. And I started to realize how much I couldn't trust myself as I was leaving that hospital. You know, every time I'd been out on my own, I just burned it all to the ground. And so uh, for me to realize, I guess, how powerless I was in that moment, it just it showed me, you know, this is a life and death situation. Whereas before it was this is a life and legal legality thing or this is something for you know that golden ticket for me to get those charges dropped or to get my family off my back and it was the first time where i was like i want to do this so i don't die the gravity of it really finally hits seriously yeah because it was always there was all you know there were a lot of heavy consequences coming along that way even early early high school uh but that was the first time where i realized like i have no control over this and you know, I don't know the answers to, to get out of this. Yeah. And so once I got to treatment and they started telling me more about 12 steps and taking me to meetings, you know, it really, it kept me motivated throughout that experience. Like even, you know, where we went, it was like a, it was almost like an AA boot camp. Okay. So yeah. it was like, you know, we got, I did the inpatient stay, but then I went to a long-term, like, you know, uh, like a halfway house kind of deal. And it was like, y'all are going to go to two meetings a day and you're going to be with people all day. And there's no cell phones, there's no cars. You know, it was, it was, I was with 30 guys and we were going to do AA whether we wanted to or not. Wow. Now was sponsorship part of that or were For you? sure. Okay. I was, I was really, I was, I knew like since I've been exposed to recovery, I had a sponsor for a little bit of time in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. So I knew, uh, things of like get a sponsor and go to meetings. I was fortunate that. Yeah, but that doesn't mean knowing it doesn't mean you're not no, no, doing no. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I, I knew that that was part of the gig and, you know, luckily there were guys who had been there for, you know, it was typically a year to a year and a half deal. It wasn't a set thing. It was like, we're, you know, we'll let you go when you're ready. Mm-hmm. And there were the, the guys there who were really doing the thing. They had a sponsor and they were going through the steps and they were sharing in meetings. It wasn't just like, okay, we're here doing our time and we'll get out and do whatever we want. It was, 
you know, we're making changes and we're living 12 step recovery. Uh, and so yeah. they kind of set up the whole living model of how to live in recovery. For sure. And then you slowly uh, moved back into the world where you just continued to do it because it was already set up for you. Exactly. So it's like the way they explained it was like, imagine like a pendulum and they had this like extremist version of recovery, like two meetings a day and meeting with a sponsor and outpatient every day and all these things. And then as you got time there, so like around for me, it was like around three months. I was like, all right, go find a job. And then do you want to get back in school? And do you know, and at that point, like they, they phase you down. So it's like, okay, you can go to a meeting a day now, but you're still going to go to this many groups. And then they slowly phase you out. And their hope is that you kind of fall somewhere in the middle once you get out. And even once I got out, it was still like, you know, it was that same feeling of when I was leaving the psych ward where I was like, is this going to work? You know, like, am I going to ruin this all over again? You know, this is my pattern. I've mm-hmm. done this so many times. And I remember my my inpatient counselor, he sat down with me early on and he was like, Michael, you've been to this many treatment centers. You've been to jail this many times. You you know, you've, you've had this many consequences. What is going to be different this time? You know, everything you've done before has not worked. And what was different? What was different was that I started, instead of just showing up to meetings, Instead of, you know, before all I had done was I was in the, I was in a similar situation. It wasn't as extreme, but, you know, we went to meetings and I had a quote unquote sponsor, but it, I wasn't changing anything. Hmm. I was still the same person. I was still a sleazebag. I was still trying to go meet girls at meetings and hang out with all the same people I was before and go to keg parties, but not drink. You know, I was not honest. I was I didn't change anything. I was just dry. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I can't, I can't even really say that that's what recovery is in my mind. Like I was exposed to recovery then, you know, but it, it really planted the seed for me to say it was a, it was a great blueprint to say, okay, this is what I don't need to do. Yeah. You know, all those yeah. things that they say, like, don't, don't do this, man, I did them all. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't work. No, not, not in the slightest for me, like a, a, a really big part while I was in that house was, you know, the things that they talk about, like I, I became part of a home group and I started sharing meetings. I had a sponsor I met with every week, you know, all these things. I started helping people. I didn't wait till I got to step 12. You know, I remember them saying, my sponsor would always tell me, he's like, you know, try and help someone today and not even let them know you're helping them and don't mm. tell anyone about it. Did you do that? Yeah, it's hard to do that. You know what I mean? It's hard. To, I was have like, you, I was like you, can you pull up an example of doing that? No, then he'll be telling us. Yeah, it will be. But, go, <laughs> but it'll help somebody else. If, yeah. Now, yeah, after seriously. all this time, yeah. you I, tell. I, I think that like early on, because we lived in this like cul-de-sac. And so I remember like early on, I was like, do I like pick up trash or do I like roll their dumpster back to the, the house? But it, it, I, didn't, I don't have any like solid examples of like helping someone and not letting them know. But it was just... You know, started off even little things yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. Are it. Well, it. and the thing is, I didn't have pure motives early on. It was it was weird. I don't know when exactly. That doesn't matter. Well, yeah, exactly. Yes. So you know, I remember like because uh, we were in treatment. I we didn't were, have. P- pure motives at all yeah. praying i mean i i prayed to the nothing that yeah. i was angry at yeah i was angry at nothing 
But I remember it was like the little things, like, you know, showing up to a meeting early and helping set up coffee mm-hmm. and staying afterwards and putting chairs up and volunteering for things I didn't want to do. You know, my only motive in that early on was to get those treatment gold stars so I could start getting yeah. some privileges like, oh, I'm ready to work now or I'm ready to have, you know, this privilege. And uh, at some point, like, I started to tap into that that purpose, right? Uh-huh. Where it was like I'd never done anything for anyone except for myself. Now, when you uh, went through other treatment programs, uh, did they have similar things of, uh, you know, do this so you can get to this reward type thing? Oh, yeah, thing? and it was, like, time-based, too, and it was way more lax. Like, I had, you know, I had a car early on and a cell phone, and, you know, it wasn't, it, was, it, was, it wasn't as strict, but I remember, like, there were things, like, after 30 days, you get this back, and after 60 days, you get this, as long as you're following the rules. That just sounds like rules to well, me. Well, and that's, just, that's the point that I wanted to get to is that, you know, it, it, while this type of, of model provides the opportunity yep. for someone to show, to, to actually be willing and do this, if the willingness isn't there, if yeah. they're just doing it to, to get through the program... Yeah. It's probably not going to work. It's up to me to give up. And I remember my my sponsor in Georgia, he would always tell me, you know, the surrender doesn't have to happen from day one. But at some point, if you want this to work, you know, if you want long-term recovery, that surrender has to happen. And I remember, you know, seeing guys, you know, nine months, 10 months, and that light coming on. Yes. And it's like... What was it for you? When would you say the light came on for you? You, it's hard to see in yourself. It is. The, I think the light came on for me. Let me put it this way. Yeah. Can you remember a pivotal thing that happened to you where you went, this is working? The, yeah, I, yeah. I got, a good, I got a good story. I'll tell you too. I remember, uh, so driving down to Georgia, I remember the last time I, the obsession was there was we were driving past one of my dealer's exits right here on Randleman on, on uh, I-40. And I remember, you know, from Burlington to Greensboro, just that war, that internal war that I lived oh, with for yeah. so long where I was like, you know, how can I get my parents to stop? How can I manipulate them to make this happen? You know, I'm not going, you know, all these things. I'm not going to go down there if they don't do this. You know, just being that like total sleaze, right? Uh, we were approaching that exit and we got to it and I didn't say anything. And from that moment, the obsession was lifted. And not just because, you know, I was out of the area, but because of the things that I continue to do, becoming a member of AA and getting a sponsor, those things kept the obsession from coming back. It was a moment mm-hmm. of surrender. Exactly. And it was like invisible. Yeah, it was like it was crazy. And I remember when I realized some change was going on, I was I had this job where I was it was uh, almost like a mom and pop Chick-fil-A kind of deal where it was just like working in a hundred degree kitchen frying chicken all day and uh and i was in southeast georgia so i mean it's it's hot Uh it's hot and i remember it was around four-ish months that i've been sober and i got off work covered in grease you know and i'm riding my bike back to the house it was like maybe a a two-mile ride and i got i got on the bike and it was so hot that the tire exploded (gasps) like legit like it was like a dime-sized hole exploded um, you know, I was a real angry drunk, right? And so I remember that happening and I couldn't, I, you know, I was only a mile from the house, but I had to get to a bike shop and that was even further. That was like a couple miles. And I remember looking down at my bike and I just started laughing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, I was like, all right. 
and I just it was the first time I didn't get angry and and I realized that like something was changing in me to where like I didn't have to be this angry hateful person and I could just accept what's going on in that moment it's uh-huh. not going to make anything better and that's what got me through treatment that idea of like you know man this is all temporary I probably said that to myself 150 times some days you know this is temporary this is temporary I can get through this at a bad feeling yeah, like we would have these consequences where like the guys were getting in trouble and being hooligans and they would be like, all right, bikes are gone. And I remember that first month. And that's month, for everybody. Oh, everybody. And I okay. remember, and imagine like, like you know, I called it AA boot camp because when I got there, they had been doing like, you know, just not like bad things. They weren't drinking and drugging, but they were, you know, just breaking rules that they knew they weren't supposed to be doing. And within four hours of getting to the house, they were like, all right, group pod which just means like, you know, everyone has to be together all day, every day. Unless you're at work, you have to be with these 30 guys. And imagine those personalities. Wow. And, and, we, and we weren't even allowed to go to like our individual like, you know, duplexes that we had. We had to be in this main house. No TVs, no nothing, and no bikes. And it was like, it was the middle of February when I got there. And so, you know, we don't get snow down there and it just rained every day and it was just 30 days of me trotting through the rain going to the two meetings a day going to outpatient having wet feet all day i remember that was just the worst (laughs) thing and i remember you know early on i was like man like can i do this like is this gonna work you know like is this worth it just you know something stuck with me and i remembered i had so much pain going into the situation from how i was drinking and drugging that i was willing and that that pain and fear thrusted me into the point where this, you know, going to AA meetings transitioned from something that I did out of fear to something that I did because like I had a purpose and I was getting something out of it and I was helping other people. I like that. This is temporary. That's a tool that we use forever in recovery, which is this will pass. I mean, how many times I've had to say that I had to say that during the uh, opening of the boiled out today <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a tool we use if that, only i could remember to use it with bad drivers <laughs> yeah yeah i'm right there with you <laughs> well but it is and i've had you know health difficulties you have too sam yeah. and you have to go through things that you do not want to go through and can't imagine how i'm going to get through this but the way i got through it was knowing okay this is this is temporary the truth is, if, if I'm in great pain, sadness, whatever, it will pass. And of course, if I'm happy, it's going to pass too. Damn it. It's all going to pass. It's all temporary. But not attaching to it is be really living in recovery. Yeah, experiencing I'm, everything as it comes and being in it when it's here. It, just yeah, keep, it keeps things alive. in perspective. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. I could either be be early recovery and be like, you know, man, like I don't deserve this. And why are all these people doing this to me? Or I could keep the perspective because that's how it was before. And when I got there, it was like, is everybody else's, everything's being done to me. Exactly. Instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, the perspective I adopted early on was like, I'm so lucky to be here. You know, like I'm blessed that like, I'm, I'm able to be in a facility like this to just spoon feed recovery to me until I can, I can start doing this on my own. So did you just get out? No, no, no. I got out. Uh, I got out. I was in there for, so I got sober in 2013 in January and I got out of there 
maybe around March of 2014. Oh, that's a long okay. time ago. So what's yeah. what's what's recovery like for you now? So now it's you know I think the the mainstays of my recovery have been no matter where I am because I recently moved to North Carolina. I moved back home from Georgia about a year ago. And the first thing I did was, you know, find a home group, find meetings I'm going to go to and keep doing the same things I did, which was have a sponsor that I meet with every week. I started volunteering up at uh, the local treatment center here in town, Mm -hmm. just finding things to be involved and keep recovery a a part of my life because that's what's been working this whole time. So why change it? So you got a local sponsor? I do. I do. I still talk to my sponsor in Georgia. We, you know, we were, we were together for five and a half years. So we, we had a, a long history and, you know, I try to call him at least once a month and just kind of drop in and, nice. you know, he's someone that I don't know where I would be without him. And I've gotten to sponsor a bunch of guys throughout that period of time from, you know, when I got out of treatment to now and to just, you know, you're not going to connect with everyone, but if it's this couple of people that you can take through the steps and, you know, really like, you know, watch them grow in recovery and get their life together. It's really, I mean, yeah, that's, there's no better feeling. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a sponsee tell me the other day that the the only time right now he's going through a rough patch, and he was, he said the only time I really feel good is when I'm talking to one of my sponsees about their problems. <laughs> huh? It puts things into perspective. Yeah, it you does. Know? Like all the things that we it gets me out of myself. Well, exactly. I mean, even no matter how many meetings I go to or how much you know, time I get under my belt, like I can still get in a funk over things that like really like, you know, aren't even happening right now. It's like, you know, me trying to play situations out in my head that aren't even reality. Yeah. And that's, that's really common. I think that might be human. I don't know. I try not to do it anymore. But it's human shit sucks. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to be human. In fact, that was the whole reason I did drugs. Yeah, I was was trying to become superhuman. There you go. Yeah, yeah. connect with those aliens out there, and and we wind up becoming subhuman. And then we become subhuman. I hate it. It backfires. Yeah, yeah. Michael, thanks for sharing with us, but don't go anywhere because we've got another segment coming. Watch your head. Watch out. See if you can grab it. It's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? I'm looking at you with shifty eyes, throwing a little bit of side eye your way. Well, let me tell you something, shiny. No longer how long you've been sober. It's one day (laughs) at a time. Because that's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. (laughs) That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. Yeah, we've 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 been doing this way too long now. Uh, you know, <laughs> this will pass. <laughs> this will pass. You can post a question for us on boiledowlaa.org. Uh, we have a question. This is from Cindy from the interwebs. We actually got a real live question. Yay! Uh, well, they're all real live questions, but yeah. it just the sources are sometimes kind of sketchy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what we do is we ask guests at the end of the interview, we ask them for a question for the old timer that we'll use later. But occasionally, we actually get a question from the internet. And we love it when we do. Yes. Thanks for telling them how the sausage is made. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Cindy asks, 
If there was one piece of advice you could give someone that has relapsed to get back on the road to recovery, what would that be? It's not, I was going to say it's not a failure to drink again, but that's not really it because it is a failure to drink again because what alcoholism is is the failure to be able to control my drinking. So that's a failure I need to accept. That was really difficult when I first came into AA. So accepting that out that it's not going to get any better. I you know, it's like I it takes every drink to reach that point of acceptance. And if you need to drink, go ahead and drink, but if you can find a place where you can say this, it's not, this is not going to get better. No matter how much I drink, I'm getting the same results. There's another way to live. And what it takes is accepting that I am a failure at drinking. It's not going to work. I'm, I have to give up, and I need to get sober someone else's way. Hmm. Come to AA and do this if you want to and see if it works for you. It certainly does work for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everybody. You know, we say that in our opening remarks. You know, there's lots of ways to live and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. But the truth of the matter is we wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work for us. This really, really works. It's not a white knuckling works. This, it works. It just, it, I, this is life. It's, I'm happy yeah. living my life. And yeah. I was not before. I didn't know how to get to the place where I would be. So there's hope here, and give it a try. Yeah. Michael, you want me to read, read the question? No, I got it. I, uh, you know, I relapse is a part of my story, and I, I think that uh, for me to understand that like recovery is a journey, like you were saying, like accepting like who I am and what I am, and you know what I know what's going to happen if I don't keep recovery a part of my life. The biggest thing that I could tell someone who had just relapsed that was the, you know, the, the most difficult thing for me to do was just ask for help. And that means me going to my family and letting them know, like, I need help. Going to my employer, letting them know I need help. Going to an AA meeting, and when they ask, you know, does anyone here have under 30 days? Raising my hand. That's the hardest thing to do. Calling someone and asking for help. In, in every outlet of my life, because we're, we're so privileged, you know, back like when, we, when I went through the, the steps with my most current sponsor, you know, thinking about like AA back then, we didn't have anywhere to go. You know, we have so many treatment centers, so many, there's, there's literally probably a dozen meetings going on every day in this town. I mean, for me to show up, and I just went through that, not with a relapse, but when I moved up here, mm-hmm. you know, raising my hand and saying, hey, like, I'm new to this area, you know, and I, w- I need to meet people and connect with this group, and I need to, you know, who's someone who could sponsor me, and, you know, all those things, like, we have to go through that. That's a willingness to let yourself be known. Exactly, exactly. So I, I think that's that would be my biggest advice. And then the other, the other, you know, flip side of that coin is, like, you know, taking that, that help. Because a lot of times I would ask for help, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the help that I wanted. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I got to take action. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yes. Thank you, Michael. 
All right, so uh, I'm going to reread it. If there was one piece of advice you could give someone that has relapsed to get back on the road to recovery, what would that be? Put down the stick. That was told to me. Uh, So when I started over in 2012, one of the worst things that I was doing that was such an obstacle to anyone helping me was beating myself up. And one of the things that is an absolute truth Actually, no, it's not. It should be. And that is that we don't kill our wounded. What? Um, so when people when, when someone comes in having relapsed, we're not mean to them. Oh, right. And for the most part, that's true. Some are sicker than others. It's true. But the vast majority of us are so happy to see someone come back, to make it back, to have survived going out and coming back and they're, they're ready to get some help. And me beating myself up was such an obstacle to that because it was one of those things that um, I was projecting my own disdain of myself and my failure onto the people around me. And they weren't doing that. They were not being mean to me. They were genuine in trying to help me. And uh, so put down the stick is what one of them told me. The way the old timer would say it is, quit putting quarters in the ass kicking machine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, it's, it's good. Um, I, I, took it, 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 I took it literally in some ways. I, uh, so I, I, I got a stick of bamboo. And I cut it up into like six-inch segments, and I put those in places that I was frequently. So there was a, a, a stick, a little short stick, but still a stick, a representation in my car, on my desk at work, on my desk at home, in the bathroom at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had this physical representation of this stick for quite a while to remind me not to pick it up. An object lesson. Yeah. A symbol um, of giving up. We're not. I'm not going to be mean to someone who has uh, who's come back from a relapse, um, no. and I certainly hope that uh, they can choose not to be mean to themselves too. Michael, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. Sometimes Sam. So you decided to ask people to call you Sam? Shannon. Because you don't like the way that the Southerners say Shannon. I do not like the way that Southerners say Shannon. <laughs> Shannon. Shannon. You like Shannon? Shannon. Shannon. Not Shanana. <laughs> <laughs>
Sometimes Sam. <laughs>